get ready to peel back the layers of fruity goodness with It's Bananas, the podcast where we build an appetite for juicy living and pleasure, fun, joy, and connection await with each succulent bite. It's deep, it's delicious, and it's bananas. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Snack Time here on It's Bananas. This is Becky, also known as the Fruit Maven. Today, as always, we're going to look at what's on my mind, what's on my table, and once again, who's at my table. I am thrilled to be joined virtually today by a friend and fellow fruit enthusiast, Megan Goring. I think we've known each other for somewhere around 15 years. Does that sound right? It's kind of close up to that. Yeah, yeah, it is pretty amazing. But the interesting thing is we only met in person this, this year. year. Yeah, so we met when I was writing and reviewing fruit on my blog, fruitmaven.com. And at that time, Megan was the general manager of the farmer's market in Palm Springs or in the Coachella Valley. So Megan, please feel free to say hello, introduce yourself any way you would like. Okay, yes. Uh, well, I'm Megan, and I'm an omnivore, <laughs> which means I'm up for eating almost anything as long as it's prepared by someone who says they adore it and have the best possible recipe. I mean, I don't know, I'll try it once at least. <laughs> so I, I did spend the longest part of my working life managing farmers markets here in California in the Coachella Valley, which is the desert area around Palm Springs. Um, which above all, um, one of the things that it convinced me of during that time was that waiting to eat something until it's at the peak of its season is the surest way to enjoy the taste. For sure. I am not currently managing the farmer's markets. I actually retired, and I'm putting air quotes around that, from the farmer's market just over a year ago. But one of the things I am also very grateful for through that experience was stumbling across the Fruit Haven blog because I enjoyed it so much. And I felt kind of an instant kinship with you just from, from reading the blog. And when I realized we were both in California and that we both had daughters the same age, I was like, I, this person, I hope she doesn't find this creepy, but I really think we should be <laughs> I loved it. I love it so much. No, it's amazing. <laughs> We've been just sort of lightly connected over the years. And then this year we finally got to meet in person. And a little bit, I'll give a little bit of a hint about what's on my mind today, which is, or on our minds today, when we get to that part, which is composting, both literally and metaphorically. But before we get to that, I want to talk about what's on our tables. So I asked Megan to bring a fruit today, and she told me in advance what it is that she was going to bring. And I have the same type of fruit on my side of the virtual screen. So while we aren't literally together... We'll still be sharing the experience of exploring it and tasting it. So Megan, what fruit did you decide to bring and why did you choose it? So I actually brought an avocado. I love that. And specifically the Haas avocado. Oftentimes people say Haas, but it's actually Haas. I learned this by reading a little bit about it. I just learned that today. <laughs> I've been saying it wrong forever. <laughs> I know, me too, until today. Right, I was just doing some research. I'm like, oh man, this is terrible. I was farmer's market manager for over 10 years and I didn't realize I was saying it wrong. But in my own defense, many of the farmers that brought this avocado to my market also mispronounced it. So I don't feel too I bad. feel like everyone mispronounces it. I've only heard it as the Haas avocado and only now know it's the Haas avocado. So 
Yeah. Did you by any chance go back and look and find the origin of the word avocado? Um, not the origin of of the name of the word avocado, but I did do a little research on the people that cultivated the Hass avocado. So I can tell you about that. But tell us about avocado, the name avocado. Okay, so it's a little ridiculous. So the word avocado comes from the word ahuacatl, which was native Aztec word, which means testicles. <laughs> <laughs> because they grow and hang in pairs on the tree and they're just I just feel like the sense of humor of the of the Aztecs has been undersold to me all this time because whoever named that is perfect. I will never forget it now every time I see an avocado. Later, it moved from aguacatl to aguacate after the Spanish conquest of Mexico and then it was renamed to avocado in America at some point in the history. So that is the delightful history of the word avocado and how we got here. That is hilarious, though, because I can totally imagine the Aztecs, you know, having some avocados like hanging from the back of, of their burrow drawn carts <laughs> in the big city, right? Can you imagine that? Like, go to the festival tree and get us something to eat. I love it. Exactly. So here's the thing about Haas, about the Haas family. Just a little backstory about avocados. So California currently grows 95% of the avocados grown in the U.S., mostly along the coastal hills between San Luis Obispo and San Diego. That's the region that avocados at their sweet spot, right? Those those rolling hills with the with the coastal breezes blowing over. And 95% currently of those avocados are the are the Haas variety. And they were developed by a backyard hobby gardener in La Habra Heights, which is in Orange, Orange County, a bit north of Anaheim. And they named this odd little variety after themselves, after it was grown from a random seed. And usually when avocado trees are grown from, from a seed like that, they're grafted with different varieties, successful varieties. And this little seed just absolutely resisted being grafted. And so they're like, okay, let's just call it after ourselves. And it turned out to be this funny little avocado that was really different from the avocados that were being grown at the time. So it was buttery and nutty and, and delicious, but it had this bumpy leathery skin, which ended up making it much easier to ship, cha-ching. And so it became extremely popular because at the time, the common avocados grown and grafted had really delicate, smooth skins. And so it was really difficult for them to be shipped. But then the cultivars from that mother tree were, were perfectly happy to be grafted. And so Rudolph Haas sold these baby trees to a nursery in Whittier, $1 per tree over the life of the patent, which he had for 17 years, they made a grand total of $4,000. No, that is wrong. Only $4,000? $4,000, I know. And that's, you know, some of the articles that I read, the descendants of the Haas family, they're like, well, you know, our dad wasn't much of a businessman. He was just a hobby gardener. The mother tree in their yard in La Habra Heights lived to be 76 years oh. old and the Haas avocado, Haas, Haas <laughs> avocado industry is now a $1 billion industry. Wow. So as long as there's a climate that it can accommodate avocados, their name 
at least, will likely live into perpetuity. Well, legacy matters. I mean, money matters quite a bit, <laughs> quite a bit too. But <laughs> legacy is pretty cool. I love, I love that. I mean, I wouldn't mind having a fruit out there that was named after me. It will never happen because I don't grow things. I eat things. Some of the most interesting avocados I've ever had, I used to go to, this was a long time ago, I used to go to the California Rare, Rare Fruit Growers meetings, which was kind of funny because everyone there is growing fruit and they'd ask me like, oh, what do you grow? And I'm like, oh, nothing. I am literally here to eat the things that you guys grew. I am a taster. You're an aficionado. I am a, yeah, a California rare fruit eater. I'm not really a California rare fruit grower. But one of the times they had like an avocado growing expert there. This guy brought like a hundred different varieties. He was mostly showing them. And then we got to taste a couple of them. And I tasted, I remember I was very disappointed with one. The taste of the avocado was fine, but it was called the bacon avocado. And I thought it was going to have a bacon vibe. No, bacon, again, is just the name of the person. That it's somebody's name. It. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I mean, this is a great avocado. And yet I'm disappointed because I want the bacon avocado situation. And it's not that. I feel like it actually does not help itself out as far as branding. But then the other one I tried was called a Nimlio. I have never seen that avocado again. It was gigantic. It was like bigger than a softball. I could barely hold it in my hand. It was the butteriest, yummiest. I would pay a lot of money to eat another one of those avocados, but I don't even know where you would get one. Like this guy had one and I got to taste it and that was a moment. Yeah. So that was the official fruit of the rare fruit of the rare fruit event of that year. So rare, you never saw it again. Never. <laughs> So let's try these. Do you have one? You have one in front of you. I do. I do. It's a little, it's a little baby, a baby one. one. It's very tiny. Mine's kind of a medium oh, one size. Of the things that I, about, I have little hands, but mine's sort of the size of my, the cup of my hand. Mine is about the size of an egg, of a big egg. Nice. How do you tell when they're ripe? How do you, what is your, do you have tricks? I have one trick. Well, with the Haas avocado, so the skin needs to be dark. So it can start off kind of a bottle green color, but then it darkens into this almost really kind of a black color. So it's definitely dark. It needs to be soft to the touch, but not squishy. A little bit of give. Yeah. I also, do you know the button trick? I have heard about the button trick. So I don't know if it's a legit thing or not, but it has worked for me. What you do is you take the little, there's like a little button on the end, which is where it connects to the tree. If you pop that button off, Underneath it, if it's brown, then the inside of the fruit is going to be brown. And if it's green, then the inside is going to be fresh and green. And if it's kind of mixed, then the inside will reflect that. Like it's a pretty, it's like a little window into the inside of the avocado. And I would say so far, it has worked for me. Again, I don't know if that's officially real, but it has, it is official for me. Okay. A window into the avocado's little soul. Correct. The Haas variety is, is um, definitely humble. You know, it, it looks like it looks like asphalt, actually. Like it's dark, <laughs> dark black, bumpy. Should we try it? I I don't actually just eat avocado plain with like a spoon, but I have one today. This one is perfectly ripe from what I can tell. Not very much smell, a little bit grassy maybe, or just fresh, kind of fresh smelling, low on the smell. Yeah, and that's the thing is that I think a lot of, a lot of times people don't think of the avocado as a fruit, although it's actually officially the state fruit of California as of 2013. Is it really? It was declared the official state fruit of California. Yeah. What was our state fruit? Did we have no fruit before that? Or did we have? I think there was not a state fruit 
Um, or maybe it flipped over from something else. I'm not sure. The thing about California is that we are the uh, the fruit basket of the United States. So we grow so many different cultivars of, of fruits and vegetables that I would imagine it's pretty tough to uh, tough to choose. But it is pretty important. I mean, it's a billion dollar industry. So wow. it makes sense. I was just going to say that the the flavor of the avocado you know, you don't think about it as a fruit because it has this kind of buttery, nutty flavor. It's, I don't know, I, do you consider it savory? I'm actually, the taste of the avocado? I'm just thinking about that right now. Not really. I mean, it's certainly not sweet, although it has a, a light sweetness to it. But I also wouldn't go with savory because it's not, for me, things that are savory fall a little more in the salty category. This is sort of in a neutral middle place, which makes sense because it's more of a fat. It does have that buttery feel, the texture is amazing. Suddenly I feel like I should be eating avocado with a spoon out of the shell more often because it really is just sort of tasting like this lovely little pudding right now. Why Mm -hmm. don't I Mm -hmm. ever do this? Maybe I do now. Maybe right now we are, this is the beginning of my (laughs) avocado pudding era. Your new relationship with avocados. Mm. Yeah. My favorite, I mean, I just love avocados with a little bit of that seasoning, the everything but the bagel seasoning. Oh, that sounds good. Oh, with just a little bit mashed up. I know this is, you know, such a stereotype of we Californians, but just, you know, some good whole wheat bread, oh, just toasted just right, smashed on top with a little bit of that, everything but the bagel seasoning. Oh, it's just the best. It is so good. Flavor-wise, I would give this five out of five. I love it. It's so delicious. And, you know, it's funny. Um, one of the things I did with the farmer's markets was nutrition education. And we debated the status of the avocado. We talked about how important it was. One of the things we discussed in my nutrition education presentation was how important fruits and vegetables are to the economy here in California. And so we did this, This uh, everybody raise your hand if you think the avocado's a fruit or a vegetable. And it's challenging because it does not taste like the fruit we're accustomed to eating. And yet there is no denying that there is a gigantic seed in the middle of this of this fruit. That is a seed which makes this a fruit. But you know, everywhere around here in the desert, you know, people are eating eating this predominantly in guacamole, which is definitely a savory application. I want to do a whole episode at some point, if not more than one about the difference between botanical classifications and like social understanding because there is a good amount of crossover between what we call a vegetable and what is a fruit. Like a a cucumber, I think is actually a fruit, a tomato, an avocado. Mm -hmm. There's a number of them. And then there's also an extremely bizarre whole thing with the word berry. What we think are berries are not berries. What we would never call a berry is a berry. Grapes are berries, for example. Raspberries are not berries. None of it makes a lick of sense. I love it, but I, we need to, I need to like dive, dive into it and figure out like what all is going on there because it's fascinating how we separate it culturally versus botanically. And why does that matter? I don't know. Maybe it doesn't matter at all, but maybe it does. So worth thinking about at some point, which speaking of thinking deeply about things that I don't know that necessarily need to be thought deeply about, let's move into what's <laughs> on my mind. So I asked Megan to join today because she's a bit of a composting expert. We were chatting a few weeks ago about how, I think it was on my second episode of It's Bananas, I was talking about dragon fruit overall, and I had turned composting into a metaphor. 
And I used it as a metaphor for just kind of accepting the reality of something that feels a lot like garbage. But at the time, I think I was talking about social rules and how we tend to accept things from society about what we can and can't do that aren't necessarily in our best interest. And while it would be great if we could just get rid of those, that felt unrealistic to me. So I proposed that perhaps composting was something that would be more useful, that we could just set it aside, put a lid on it, and revisit it at a later time when something good could be made from the remnants. And I acknowledge that I really have no business making this a metaphor because I have no idea how composting works. And I was telling all of this to Megan and she said, oh, you should have phoned a friend. I could have helped. And I'm like, actually, let's jump on that and bring you on as a guest to teach us all because I think it literally matters. And so we'll talk literally about composting and then also metaphorically about composting. So first of all, how did you become an expert in composting? Would you even use the phrase composting expert? Because you are to me because I'm a baby beginner, know nothing. But how would you describe that yourself? Well, I was I was educated about compost very early on. And then there was a, a long period of time where I did no composting. But my first experience with composting was a gigantic pile next to my mom's vegetable garden in northern Oklahoma. Oh, from when you were a child. When I was yeah, where I, when I was a child, we lived in northern Oklahoma. She had a big vegetable garden and she would just toss stuff into it and stir it around, including an armadillo that she killed with a hoe when she found it digging up her garden, probably looking for grubs. I didn't witness this event. I know, right? Wow. (laughs) She killed it with a hoe. I didn't witness this event. It's just part of family lore. But I do remember the compost pile. It seemed enormous, as did the garden. But, you know, I was four years old, so things seem very big (laughs) when you're that small. For sure. As I recall, it didn't require a lot of work. It was something she continually added to. And it always snowed a little bit where we lived in the in the wintertime. Not a lot, but a little. And the pile would just covered get covered with snow. And then when it melted, she would get in there with her shovel and dig it up. And when it was time to plant her spring garden, she would use that compost as her as her fertilizer. And it worked really well. Amazing. So as I said, for a long time, I had nothing to do with composting. Um, We moved to Arizona when I was in first grade. My mother was very frustrated with the extreme change in in climate, couldn't figure out how to make a garden work and kind of gave up and went back to work full time and, and returned as a retiree to gardening. But there was a long period of time, there was no gardening in my life at all when we just adjusted to living in the desert, but it is possible. I still live in the desert, a different one. I live in Palm Springs, but it's kind of the same latitude. It's absolutely possible to compost um, in this climate. You just have to know how to do it. And I recently became, I guess, officially an expert because I, I took a master composter class given by the Riverside County Department of Waste Resources. And I I know a lot about composting now. I also did kind of an internship, apprenticeship with an organization here in the desert called Desert Compost. I did a lot of volunteering and uh, really got my hands dirty with composting over the past year after I retired from the farmer's market. So yeah, I, I know quite a bit about composting. Is it legally required to do it where you are? So I feel like in the past, so this was just my impression, but like I grew up kind of in the city and it was my impression that people who compost are kind of hippie or from Portland, one of those two um, or both. And that wasn't something that like regular folks do, but that was just like from childhood. That was my impression of composting. 
that was the entirety of it. And now as an adult, like I'm like, oh, this is a great thing to do. I, I work more in environmental industries and I care more about it. And it's actually legally required to compost in San Diego now, although not. So I live in a condo, so it's not required here yet because it's actually somewhat difficult to do if you don't have a yard and various facilities, I think. So I that's my, again, my impression is that it's hard, but I am... Very curious to see hear from you. Is it well? First of all, my first question: Is it required where you are? And then we'll go quickly to how do we do it? Yeah. So technically, it is required all over the entire state. Is it as of 2016? It went into law. SB 1383 makes it the rule that everyone in the state is supposed to divert all of our organic materials out of the landfill. And the reason for that is because organic material in that kind of closed environment creates a tremendous amount of methane, which is a greenhouse gas 25 times more potent than carbon dioxide. Um, As you can imagine, the implementation of this law has been a huge shift and it kind of stumbled and stopped during the COVID outbreak, kind of like making a 180 degree turn with a cruise ship. It's going to take a while. However, Once we make the change and everything is put into place so that everybody can participate in composting, it's going to make a huge difference. And if everyone in the world composted all of their organic materials, we would turn, you know, the ship of climate change around, literally. Okay, teach us, teach us. We need to know. I actually had no idea it's been a law since 2016. That's embarrassing to me that I didn't know that. But here we are. So let's fix it today. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's true that I think the majority of people, once once the full implementation is, is really rolling, the majority of people in the state of California are going to be utilizing the resources of their waste hauler. So they're going to be separating their organics into some kind of container that's, that's picked up alongside of the, the waste that's going to the landfill and they're recycling. There'll be a, a, probably a sep- either a new container or a reuse of a yard waste container. That's the way it is in uh, Palm Springs is that we utilize the container that used to just be for our grass clippings and our leaves. And now we are allowed and encouraged. And actually, you know, they've told us we really need to start doing this. All of our um, household organics are supposed to go into that bin unless you are making compost at home, which you certainly can do. Basically, there there's a formula. It's not complicated at all. The formula is greens plus browns plus water plus air plus time equals compost. So greens are your nitrogen materials. So that's, you know, anything that's coming out of your kitchen. So it's fruits and vegetables. It can be also tea from your side of your tea bags. Your, so your scraps but it can also be green leaves, grass, green glass, grass clippings. It can be old bouquets that have seen their lifespan come to an end. And all of these materials are added to browns, which is your carbon materials. And that can be, can be hay, it can be shredded paper, it can be shredded cardboard, paper towels, it can be pet hair in small amounts um, or feathers. All of these things can be composted and you can put them in your home compost if you wanted to. But there are some things that that 
I learned over time that you should not put in your home compost if you're going to be composting at home. Can you guess what those things might be? No. I'm like, hmm, no. Uh, I'm I'm currently like riveted by the fact that you can put hair in it. I That is kind of blowing my mind. I'm not completely sure why, but I'm like, oh, exciting. Well, if you have a pet that's, that's, that sheds a lot, then that's an exciting thought, right? I have a Labrador retriever and he blows coat almost continuously. So when I realized I could put some of that in my compost, I was like, yes. I have a poodle, not shed, but if I have like a bad week or a bad month and I cut my bangs on the random morning, can that head into the compost? Absolutely. This feels like a double win. Okay. Second question, does the green and the brown have to be in equal proportion? So no, you should actually have, it's, it's a ratio of usually one to three of your greens to your browns. So you need to be adding more browns. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and that's where a lot of times people who are trying to do home composting kind of go awry because they have a nitrogen heavy mixture. And what that happen, what happens with that is that it tends to be kind of smelly and it can attract pests most notably flies. And people say, this is disgusting. Why did I decide to do this? I'm giving up right now. But it's really just a matter of getting the ratios right. Because if you do have the right ratio, it hardly has any smell at all. The smell is kind of like that earthy smell, like when you're walking through the forest, because that's that's what compost is, is decomposing vegetable matter, essentially. The, the earth does it naturally on its own, as long as the, as long as things are right enough moisture and the right, you know, mixture of ingredients, it's just going to happen. Compost happens. Okay. So, so the question is, what should sorry, not go ahead. put in there? My one guess, and this is based on my deep expertise around what not to push and put in the garbage disposal is coffee grounds. Wrong. <laughs> no, you can absolutely put coffee grounds in your compost. That's a great source of nitrogen. Although it is brown, it's actually considered a green because it's a it's a great source of nitrogen. So no, you can absolutely put coffee grounds in there. Okay, what should I think about this? Like we're supposed to be putting any food we we are not consuming into away from from the landfill, right? So that would include if you are an omnivore like myself, that would include meat, that would include dairy, that would include oil and that kind of thing, which if you are making compost at home, you should not put that in your home compost because with those items, first of all, you're gonna attract more pests. So potentially pests like rats or raccoons or things that could kind of make a mess in your yard they were digging through them because they they already have a scent especially if they're cooked also the typical home composter is not going to have enough mass to create a high enough temperature to break down uh, the potential pathogens that would arise from putting those kind of proteins into your compost you would really need to be generating about 200 pounds of material per week in order to successfully break down and create that kind of high mass that would create the, the high temperatures. So between 130 and 160 degrees, which is kind of the sweet spot with your temperatures. If you want to break down that kind of material, most people don't generate that much material unless you have a restaurant in your home. Well, if we're trying to do it at home, so you said green plus brown plus water plus air plus time. Did I get it right? 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Pro. Five minutes in, 10 minutes in. <laughs> okay. It's, so, it's really easy. How do we put, how much water? How do we get the air? Is there a special like container or do we add it ourselves? I would highly recommend some kind of container and it can be as easy as kind of like a, a trash can that you've repurposed. You can purchase a compost container, which uh, there's, there's a brand called the Geobin, which is basically a perforated piece of plastic that you pull into a cylinder shape. Or you can have, you know, you can make a box out of leftover wood, like wood from a pallet. So if you're super into DIY, there's all kinds of videos online. You can make your own compost container. But you can also buy um, a container called a tumbler, which is kind of, it looks like a tractor wheel, except it's got a, it's got like a little window in it and you can open and close it. And that helps to, to turn the material because normally if you if you don't have a tumbler you're going to be manually turning your pile you could just let it sit there and that's kind of the the slow and natural way to make compost you can just put all your ingredients together and just let it sit but it's going to take a while especially if you live in a dry climate like i do it's it's pretty tough because if you don't keep the proper water ratio basically it's just gonna kind of desiccate and go to sleep. Eventually it will break down, but unless you are turning it and making sure that the water ratio is is correct, it's going to take a long time to break down. So if you turn it and you keep the water ratio proper, which is, so the way that we usually describe it is if it's like the consistency of wrung out sponge, that's kind of what you're going for. So if you squeeze it and it dribbles, that's too wet. Or if you squeeze it and it doesn't hold together, that's too dry. Awesome. Okay. So ideally, well, maybe not even ideally, like we have to have basically support from the larger community with picking up a bunch of the waste in order for this to to work at a large scale. But if we want to, in addition to that, compost at home, we can use this method. And then what can we do with it? Well, compost is nature's perfect fertilizer. So once you, once you have, you know, once you've turned the resources that you already own and you've mixed them together in the, in the, in the uh, ratio that I described, you have this amazing organic material that's basically the stuff of life. I heard one of my farmers, I, I went out, we filmed some educational videos at his date farm and he had piles of compost all throughout his grove. So basically all the clippings from his farm, he just sort of piled up in piles up and down the rows of his, of his date farm. And uh, he said that in a, in a teaspoon of his compost underneath his, his date palms was as many living organisms as there are stars in the sky. And so it's, it's the stuff of life compost. It rejuvenates the soil and connects everything together. I love that phrase. It's the stuff of life. Like that's so beautiful, which is a really good segue from going from literal composting over to the metaphorical side of composting. So I, as you know, I like to turn everything into a metaphor. I guess my question for both of us, we can start with you, is do you think that composting has something to teach us about living our lives? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I was going to say, you know, one of my experiences as a young person, 
after we moved from Oklahoma to Arizona, I lived in a kind of a funky university town and there was a, a co-op grocery store that we used to go to way back in the late seventies. They had bins back there before you, you know, had a bin that you can put your recycling into that came, got picked up with your trash every week. You would take your recycling and separate everything into these bins behind the co-op. And I remember seeing a, a vehicle parked out there by those separation bins and it had a bumper sticker and it said, throw it away. There is no away. And then there was this little graphic of the earth. And that really stuck with me mm. that everything that we have or that we generate, we are living with forever. There is no away. And so we need to utilize the resources that we have in the best possible way we can, because there's no getting rid of it really. So we might as well utilize what we have to nourish ourselves, nourish our planet. And that's sort of my, my personal philosophy. And I think it really dovetails nicely into into compost, because that's what it does. We're taking resources that, that we are in the habit of tossing out, throwing it away, but there is no away. So we need to utilize it because if we don't, that's the problem, right? Is that if we just sort of like out of sight, out of mind, put it into the landfill, we are destroying the planet because it creates methane. Yeah, for sure. So we can't just let it sit. We can't do it. Yeah. You know, and this whole time you're talking, I'm just thinking about how we do that with our experiences in life too, right? Like when, when difficult things, it's like, we just want to get rid of it. There's re relationships that end and we're like, get out or things that happen and be easier to just pretend it didn't happen. Or we shove those emotions down, or we just, we do whatever we can to move forward. And some of that makes a lot of sense, but mm -hmm. some of that does harm in the end because we aren't there. I love that phrase. Like there is no away. It comes with us as much as we try to numb or pretend or avoid or do any of those things. And I'm just thinking, as we're just talking, I'm really loving this metaphor even more because I don't want to look for silver linings in things. I just don't find that that, I just find that hard <laughs> in life, you know, and I, I, I was going through a bunch of stuff at one point and someone was like, well, you'll always learn something. And I'm like, my preference would be to learn from a book. Thank you very much on my own free time. Life can stop sending me things to learn from. I got it. I, I got it. <laughs> no, thank you. No more learning for me. But the truth is, if we if we approach it more like compost, there are things here I don't love that in one sense are garbage or look like trash or look like something I have no more use for. But if I match those up with other things that and give it air and some care and some time. And I think the time part is interesting too, because a lot of times people will only give things time. And with only time, that's where I think you reference like you can get out of balance and we end up with just something rotten that stinks. So I like that there's a few different steps, but they're fairly simple. And altogether, you end up with the stuff of life. That's how we can look back and say, oh, that thing was not great. I wish this had not happened. But it turns out that now that it's churned for a while, I've given it some air, I've given it some time, I've grown as a human being, I've matched up my new experiences with this other older experience. Maybe there's something good here that I can give away or use in some different way. Absolutely. And that's the thing. One of the things about compost is that, like I was saying, nature will make compost eventually. Everything breaks down eventually that's organic in nature. 
So eventually, you know, it, it'll go back to the earth because that's just what the earth does. But you you can actually speed up the process. So if you if you are careful, if you're utilizing the formula, if you're turning it, turning it over on a regular basis, you can make compost more quickly. So that's the thing is that if you if you decide I'm going to I'm going to make this experience meaningful and I'm not going to set it to the side. I'm going to just actively pursue making something good out of this. It, you can get through it more quickly and you can get quicker to the end result. So that is possible if you want to put the effort into it, but it's your choice. That's the thing. You can do it more quickly or you can just let it happen naturally, whatever works best for you. Yeah. I think that is really beautiful. And the older I get, I appreciate that I've gotten some skills <laughs> to kind of move through some of that more quickly. I, I'm coming to value that as I'm moving into middle age, as it were, that it's just like, okay, finally, things don't have to just feel so heavy all the time. I have a lot more of a tool set to sort of move through things and make them beautiful more often or useful more often or whatever it may be. Because stuff's, you know, again, not to overly overly push on the metaphor, but like we're creating trash every day. We're, we're creating extra with, with eating and with life. We're creating stuff that we don't need, right? Like that we no longer need in the immediate. And so it's, it's pretty constant. So I guess you were talking about how if we all did this, you know, it would really make a change in climate change if we all composted. And I think in our personal lives, if we all learned how to do this better, it would make a lot of social change as well. But it can feel a little bit like I'm doing this a lot of effort around this one small thing. Does it does it matter in the in the thing the scheme of things? I hear a lot about climate dread. So one thing that I personally find is that learning and cultivating the art of having and holding joy is a key, I think both to learning how to compost my own life, but also to just combat that sort of existential dread, the literal dread from climate. So my question for you before we close it out is, do you have anything in particular, a hobby, a passion, or something along those lines that helps you tap into delight or joy? Well, for me, it's really being in community with other people. Mm. And so that was one of the things that, that I've discovered in my exploration of compost is that the organization that I was apprenticing with, Desert Compost, is dedicated to the education of composting, but also creating community composting sites. So one of the things I enjoyed the most was gathering with other people in places where we were taking these materials and together we were creating compost out of them. One of the places that, that I worked uh, was, a, was a location where they were serving hot meals to people who were unsheltered and they were taking the leftovers from these meals and turning into compost. And the joy of coming together with other people to make something amazing and nutritious and nourishing for the earth was just such a delight. And that was one of the things I missed about no longer working for the farmer's markets was just my connection with the people in my community. But compost does that too. It connects you to people who are also dedicated to seeing the earth perpetuate itself and kind of like combating some of the throwaway culture, you know, the the disposable culture that's kind of isolated us. So yeah, it can if you're if you're doing compost alone, it's like, yay, me, I'm doing something to help the earth. But if you have the opportunity to gather with other people to create this amazing stuff, for me, that that makes it all the better. And I will say. One of the elements of 
compost, of course, is browns. And when you're composting on a community scale, you need a lot of browns. So we contracted with uh, a landscaper and they brought us a truckload of browns in the form of wood chips. And oh my gosh, the smell of wood chips brings me so much joy. <laughs> and the day that they dropped off this enormous, it was like 40 yards of wood chips. If you can imagine like a dump trucks full of wood chips that was just recently chipped up like that morning, they had chipped up a bunch of wood and they dumped it right next to where we were doing our composting and it smelled so delicious. And I just climbed up in the pile and I jumped in the pile of wood chips and it was utterly delightful. I wish y'all could see the look on Megan's face because talking about wood chips, her eyes are lit up, her cheeks are really, like she's looking up in the sky, like it, like in a in a kind of a sense of delight and awe. It's really beautiful. It's beautiful to see. I love it so much. I I love the uh, the image of you jumping into a pile of wood chips. I can imagine the smell completely. This is such a great place to pause, Megan. Thank you so much for being our guest today, for coming and teaching us about composting. I absolutely love that we first connected over our love of fruit and now we can connect over composting literally and metaphorically and being messy and beautiful humans who get to compost it all and make something new. You are a delight. Thanks for coming. Well, Becky, just ditto. You are also a delight and it's been so fun getting to know you in real life as well as virtually. And, uh, and I think it really was meant to be. I love the sort of full circle of ripened fruit all the way to compost because it is the stuff of life, right? And it's been a great opportunity. So thanks for inviting me. It's, it's been fun to be your guest. Yay. That's a wrap for this week, y'all. I hope this chat helps you see opportunities to turn what might at first look like trash or waste into beautiful resources. Until next time, I apple you. If you find It's Bananas appealing, it would mean a lot to me if you'd plant a seed of support by giving it a five-star rating and hitting that follow or subscribe button on the It's Bananas show page. Be a peach, share a favorite episode with a friend, and reach out to me on Instagram, at fruitmaven, all one word.